You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Holy Spirit, I ask that you open up the scriptures to us today and reveal to us truth, stir us to action, and increase the depth of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ today. Amen. Open your Bibles to John 3:22. We're in the midst of what may be the greatest crisis to ever hit the human race. In only a few months, the coronavirus has gone from being a problem over there, in a few isolated places in a few foreign countries, to a problem right here in Australia, and it is shaping up to be devastating in every nation on the earth. I don't need to rehearse the situation. The news reports are inescapable, and the water cooler conversation, for as long as that is still possible, revolves around coronavirus. People have responded with panic buying and hoarding, stripping supermarket shelves bare of the basics. I haven't had coronavirus, but I don't recall that the last time I had influenza, a shortage of toilet paper was my biggest problem. Unfortunately, Christians are not immune to fear and panic buying, but we should be. I plan to address this more fully next week, God willing. But for now, we've been working our way through John's Gospel for some time now, and I'm not surprised to find that the passage we're up to in John speaks into our situation. Neither should you be surprised. God's word is always relevant to our circumstances. Sometimes we have to dig a bit deeper to find the relevance, but the Holy Spirit has a remarkable way of making even the most obscure passages meaningful for us. So let's read the passage first from John 3:22 through to verse 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I talked last week about John the Baptist. He's an interesting individual. When we first met him earlier in the Gospel, he was already pointing the way to Christ. It tells us in John chapter 1, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. That was John's job. That was the task he was appointed to. John was sent by God specifically to bear witness about the light. Jesus Christ. John's task was to make Christ known, to point people away from himself and to Jesus Christ instead. John was never distracted from that task. 
A lesser man might have been swayed by the flattery and the attention that he received and decided to establish his own following, but not John. John was a charismatic, larger-than-life person. Those sorts of people today tend to become celebrities, attracting huge followings, and some of them get so caught up in their fame that they forget where they came from, and they forget where all their blessings come from. John's message, though, wasn't the sort of message that people usually find attractive. He didn't tell people how to have your best life now. Rather, he called people snakes in the grass. He told them they were wicked sinners who needed to repent of their rebellion and turn to the Lord now, before it was too late, before they faced eternal destruction. But people still came in droves to hear what he had to say and to be baptised by him. There was something special about this man, something that set him apart from others. What a temptation John must have faced, though. Let's face it, it feels good when people listen to us, when they follow us, when they want to do things for us. It's good for the ego. And there's no reason to assume that John was immune to these temptations either. But in spite of all the attention he got, he never seemed to get caught up in himself. He never lost his focus. John could have thought, look, I've got all these followers, I'm well known, I'm popular, and I'm having an impact. These people are all out here in the wilderness because of me. Why shouldn't I be their leader? Who needs this Christ character anyway? What a temptation. But John never succumbed to the temptation to attract his own following, to blow his own trumpet. He never wavered from pointing people to Christ. And that, friends, is our calling today too. We have a remarkable opportunity during this crisis to point people to Christ. I'll expand a little on that later on. It tells us in, John, in verse 22 of John chapter 3 that after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptising. So much of what Jesus said and did is surprising to us. It's even countercultural. So much of what is foreign to the way we would organise events and promote ourselves if we had something important to say or to sell. Jesus came to save the world. What more important job could anyone have? And yet, as soon as he begins his ministry, he heads off for a holiday in the country, away from the crowds of Jerusalem. Why not stay where the action is? Why not put up big billboards and advertise revival meetings on the radio and TV? Why not promote yourself on Facebook or Instagram? Come on, Jesus, you need to learn a bit about self-promotion if you want to be successful. But have you ever noticed that God doesn't need our marketing strategies? He has a perfect plan. He has a perfect strategy. He has perfect timing. In fact, what looked like a failure 2,000 years ago has become the most life-changing, most society-changing movement in human history. And God uses strange people like John the Baptist, and he uses imperfect people like you and I to bring about that life change and that society change. A friend of mine likes to say that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That's encouraging. I know I'm a crooked stick. It's comforting to me to know that in all my failures, my mistakes, even in my willful rebellion, God is able to draw a straight line with me. And not only is God able to draw a straight line with me, 
he actually uses somehow my crookedness to draw that straight line. And friends, he will do that with you too. God intends to use every one of us crooked sticks during this crisis to draw a straight line back to Jesus Christ. After this, it tells us, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptising. John also was baptising at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptised, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptising and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John had been preaching the coming Messiah, the Christ, and getting people ready for his arrival. Then Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus is baptised himself by John. And then for a while, John and Jesus have parallel ministries. But this causes a bit of a problem, at least for John's disciples. They don't seem to be too happy about this rival baptism camp that's set up near them. So John's disciples naturally decide they're going to defend their turf to look after their own patch. They want to make sure they lose nothing to this rival mob. The problem was that they'd forgotten, or maybe they just never understood in the first place, what John was all about, pointing people to Christ. That was supposedly why they were with John, to help point people to Christ. How tragic that they lost sight of that task. How tragic when we lose sight of that task. But John never lost sight of it. John knew he was not the star of the show. John knew his was a supporting role. So he always pointed people to Jesus. John truly was a great man. He preached his message with boldness and fearlessly. He refused to soften it no matter who his audience was, no matter how important they were. He even tore strips off of King Herod, demanding that Herod repent of his sins. And he did this right to Herod's face. Jesus said of John, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. There have been few people in history who have preached their message so boldly and so fearlessly as John did. Yet at the same time, John was a humble man. In a few verses time, John says, he, Jesus Christ, must increase. I must decrease. Now that wasn't a false humility, that wasn't pretending to be lowly so that people would admire you because of how humble you are. No, it was that John knew that whatever gift, whatever calling, whatever influence he may have had, and even life itself, he only had because God had granted it to him. John was bold and fearless in his proclamation, but there was no arrogance in him. John knew that his message was urgent. He knew it was a matter of life and death. Turn to Christ. Turn to him now. Turn to him before it's too late. What an example for us believers. We have the same important task of pointing unbelievers to Christ and telling them they need to turn to him now before it's too late. We shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed by that. But equally, we shouldn't be arrogant or condescending. For the same thing applies to us as applies to John. 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. We have only what we have been given from heaven. But oh, what a message we have. It's no less powerful than John's message to point people to Christ. And as I've already said, we Christians have an unprecedented opportunity today to point people away from fear and chaos and confusion and selfishness and instead point them to Christ. goes on to say in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Who are the most important people of the wedding? Not the best man, that's for sure. The most important people, of course, are the bride and the bridegroom. Where does the best man, the bridegroom's friend, fit into the scheme of things? If all the focus was on him, you would think that things were out of balance. For the best man is not the reason for the wedding. The best man, the bridegroom's friend, helps prepare for the big day. And on the big day, he makes sure everyone's attention is on the bride and the groom. John understood this. When the bridegroom arrived, John made a point of directing everyone's attention to him. Then John's, John's job was essentially complete. It was time for him to slip into the background and enjoy the celebrations. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John will go on to call people to repentance and trust in Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, for a time, for as long as he lives, as should we. John truly was a great man. He was frightened of no one. He was frightened of no one because he knew his God. He was frightened of no one because he knew the task he was called to. He was frightened of no one because he knew his place in God's plan. He was frightened of no one because he knew that the only reason he even had breath, let alone anything else, was because God had granted it to him. John was frightened of no man, and John was not frightened of death. If John were alive today, he would not be frightened of coronavirus either. He would continue to point people to Christ. Oh, that we would have the same boundless confidence in our Lord, in our call, in our place, in his scheme, in his perfect plan. Oh, that we would fear neither man, nor death, nor virus. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a sentiment. He must increase, but I must decrease. Is this true of you and I? Do we truly believe that Jesus Christ must increase and we must decrease? I hope so. All of our life must be about magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ in our words, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our gathering together, in our service to others. Jesus Christ must be magnified. He must increase. For there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So how then do we do that in these circumstances, how do we point people to Christ in the midst of chaos and crisis? For Jesus Christ must still increase, and he will increase. I'm convinced that when we come out the other side of this crisis, we'll discover two things about the Christian church. 
The first is that the church has grown. And the second is that the church has shrunk. Now what do I mean by that? How do we make sure we're in the part that grows? The Christian church today is growing at a faster rate than at any, at any other time in history. And it's growing especially rapidly in countries where it's banned, where Christians are persecuted, even killed for following Christ. I heard some fascinating statistics just yesterday about that. I may get a chance to share some of it next week. The Christians in those hostile countries show a purpose, a strength, a resolve, a peace under persecution that just doesn't compute for those who don't know Christ. Why would a person willingly go against his lifelong religion, his family, his culture to follow Christ? Why would he or she risk being ostracised and even face a brutal death to follow this man, to follow this God? Because there's something special about him. Now, we're not being persecuted for our faith at the moment, but we do have an opportunity as followers of Christ to display purpose, strength, resolve and peace in the face of contagion. We are in a prime position to point people to Christ in such a way that makes people ask why we have that peace, why we have that confidence, why we have that hope. We're perfectly placed to tell them what, it's, what it is that is so special about Jesus Christ. And how can we stir them to ask these questions? We can start by offering our help. We can serve them. We can pray with them. We can be a calm, peaceful, joyful and hopeful port in this wild storm. We can do simple things like collect groceries for our neighbours. We can be generous with the toilet paper and the rice and the pasta that we've already hoarded. I mentioned on the video that I posted on the church Facebook page yesterday that there is a flyer we can distribute to our neighbours with offers to help. This is one simple way we can point people to Christ. Check our church Facebook page for the link. I'm not suggesting we rush in like fools where angels fear to tread. Use appropriate caution. Make sure you're careful about hygiene. But we can still reach out to our neighbours who may be locked in and locked in either by fear or by necessity. At the moment, simple actions like this will be a powerful witness to Christ. In this way, we bear witness in our communities about the light of Christ, just like John the Baptist did. But then what do I mean when I say that the church will shrink? Again, just like in those countries where people are persecuted for their faith, those whose faith is not genuine will fall away. Why face death for what you don't really believe in? Why serve when you don't really believe in the one who's calling you to serve? I think there will be plenty of people who have been sitting in churches, in some cases maybe for years, who go to church because they've always gone to church, not because they have a genuine relationship with Christ. Cultural Christians, they're sometimes called, because they've grown up in that way, but they've never encountered the risen Christ in a life-changing, heart-renewing way. For these people, a closed church will be just the opportunity they didn't realise they were waiting for just the opportunity for them to get comfortable with the idea of sleeping in on Sunday morning, 
and having a leisurely breakfast and relaxing for the rest of the day. Many of these cultural Christians I don't think will be seen back in the church after this crisis passes. It will be a sorting out of the sheep from the goats, if I could be so bold as to put it that way. Friends, we should pray for these people. We should point them to Christ. They need him too. I've said it in the past and I'll say it again. We Christians have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. John the Baptist shows us what it shows us what it truly means to live for Christ. He shows us what true Christian ministry is, pointing others to Christ. It is about firstly making sure that Jesus Christ is preeminent in our lives so that we can then make his supremacy known to others. This Christ that John so boldly proclaimed and so willingly died for is the same Christ that extends to us an invitation to be rescued from fear and chaos, from rebellion and sin. There is no one more worthy of our attention, our affections, our worship. Not husband, not wife, not children. There is none who stand above Christ, for he truly is supreme. It's why John the Baptist was emphatic that he must increase but I must decrease. I invite you today, if you have never met Jesus Christ, if you have never put your trust in him, to do that now. Ask God to show you what it is that John the Baptist saw in this man, this God. Ask God to show you the peace, the security, the comfort, the freedom from fear, the freedom from guilt and condemnation that is part and parcel of trusting Jesus Christ. Would you join me to close in prayer? Heavenly Father, in these crazy times, you have not lost control. In fact, not only are you in control, but you are using this crisis to advance the church for your glory. Help us, Father, to be at peace in the chaos, to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on Christ. Help us to find ways to reach out to our neighbours and our workmates, and even to strangers, with the gospel displayed through acts of service. We pray, Lord, that you will open doors for us to make Jesus Christ known to them, that you would give us the words to speak when they ask us about the hope that is within us. And we ask that you would open the eyes of our friends and our family and our workmates to the magnificence of Jesus Christ. May they also know the joy of being rescued from their rebellion and sin from their fear and confusion. Make them a part of this new family that you are forging. May Jesus Christ increase and may we decrease in our eyes and in the eyes of the world around us. In the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.